This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. And the title for this morning's message is Christ to each other and to the world. From 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that as we turn to your word and as we seek to understand it rightly, Father, we do pray that you would take hold of of our minds, that you would help us to understand your word rightly, to be faithful to the text. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to choose my words wisely, and should I speak anything that is not true or contrary to Scripture, Father, I do pray that you would strike it from the minds of those who are listening. But in the end, Lord, we do pray that you would give us a greater glimpse of your glory and the glory of your Son. We pray that you would enable us to take the message of this passage to heart, to apply it to our own lives, to apply it to this church, and that we would earnestly pursue after the truth that the Holy Spirit desires us to to know and to understand. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> when, uh, when God created Adam and Eve, we're told there in... Genesis chapter 2, that God created them after his own image. It says, quote, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We're then told that after God had formed the man from the dust of the ground, that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath in the Hebrew is the word ruach. It is the same word that is used for wind or spirit. He breathed into him the breath of life. What is noteworthy is the language that is used there in Genesis chapter 1 regarding the creation of Adam. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The Hebrew words for image and likeness there in the text are the words Salem and Demuth. Salem and Demuth. Those same words are used with regard to Adam's son, Seth. 
In Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, for instance, we read this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. Same Hebrew word. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, same Hebrew word, and named him Seth. Later, we see similar language being used to talk about carved images which God forbids for his people to worship. We see that, for instance, in places like Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, where God forbids uh, the making of carved images and worshiping them. It's the same Hebrew word. We see that as well in Numbers chapter 33, verse 52. <clears throat> The point is that God created man in his image and likeness. And then he breathes into him the breath of life. He places within him, as it were, a divine spark. So that humanity would be a visible and physical representation of our creator. That's the idea why God doesn't make anything else in creation after his likeness and after his image. It's why God does not breathe the breath of life into any other living being on earth. Thus, when people make the argument that there is no evidence for God, that there is no evidence of a divine creator, we are the evidence of God. Human beings are the evidence of God. We are the evidence of a divine creator. Human beings are far more advanced than any other living creature in this world. And this is because we are intended on purpose to be a reflection of our creator to the world. The point I'm getting at is that the same is true of Christ and the church. Those who want to make the argument that it is, it is difficult to believe in a person who lived 2,000 years ago, whom we can no longer see or feel or touch, fail to understand one of the most important purposes for the church. In other words, the world is not devoid of Christ. Christ is not just sitting up in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, but rather Christ does exist in the here and now. He exists in the here and now. Christ is truly and physically present through his church. The body of Christ. Just as all humans, all human beings are the physical representation of God on earth, the church is not, the church is not only the physical representation of Christ, but is the physical manifestation of Christ on earth to ourselves and to the world. And like Adam, the church possesses within her the breath, the spirit, 
the Ruach of God exists within the church. This is the point. This is the reality that Paul wants the church in Corinth to grasp and to understand, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the world. Notice, if you're looking in your Bibles, verse 27, <clears throat> Paul says this, Now you are, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul has already stated this fact in so many words and in several different places as we've gone through 1 Corinthians. In chapter 10, verse 17, for example, Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. In chapter 12, verse 12, Paul wrote this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. He says again in chapter 12, verse 20, As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Are you getting the point? There is only one body. And then he says again in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ. You, the church, are the body of Christ on earth. Paul just keeps hammering home this idea because he wants him to understand that Christ is not just somewhere out there in the distance. He is not just seated at the right hand of God the Father looking down upon us like ants in an ant farm watching what we do from a distance. He's not just a divine spectator. Christ was not just here 2,000 years ago, but ever since his ascension into heaven, he has been absent from earth. Christ is here on earth in a real and physical way through the church. This is because Christ is present in every believer. Christ is present in every believer through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is also because Christ envelops every believer by means of our union with Christ through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ indwells us and he envelops us. He surrounds us. My friends, this is a really, really important truth for us to comprehend and to really take hold of. Not just for the wow factor. Like, man, that's, that's some amazing theological truth. But because there are real and concrete implications and applications to fully grasping that truth. You see... Because Paul, before his conversion, thought Jesus was no longer here. He thought that Jesus was dead 
and gone. Paul thought that the ringleader of Christians who could perform miracles and walk on waters and, 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 and multiply fish and bread had been gotten rid of. And now Paul can persecute Christians with impunity until Christ stops him on the Damascus Road. And then he realizes Christ is not gone. He is still here in this world. The point is that to serve Christ, to serve Christ himself, Listen, I, I really want you to get hold of this. To serve Christ himself, to serve the person of Christ, is to serve the church. To minister to Christ is to minister to the church. To give to Christ is to give to the church. To honor Christ is to honor the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean a building. I don't mean the idea of church. I don't mean the theological doctrine of the church. I mean the members of the church who are the body of Christ. You want to serve Christ himself? You want to minister to Christ himself directly, personally, physically? Minister to each other. Minister to the church. That's how we serve Christ directly, personally, physically. Because the church is the body of Christ. The church, all believers, are the physical and visible manifestation of Christ on earth. We are Christ to each other, and we are Christ to the world. That's how the world will see Christ in us and through us. And so Paul, once again, drives home the point... You, all of you, are the body of Christ. That's his first point. His second point is that within the body, God sovereignly appoints offices and gifts to be used to minister to each other and to the world. Notice verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Now, again, I've said this before, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, Paul lists other gifts back in uh, verses 8 to 10. There he listed the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, the gift of faith, distinguishing of various kinds of spirits. Also in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, Paul will list still other gifts that aren't even listed here in this chapter. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he will list uh, other gifts uh, that are not listed here. And uh, and then in 1 Peter, of course, Peter writes 1 Peter, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Peter will list other gifts that are provided by the Holy Spirit to the church. And and I'm not going to go over all of those various gifts 
in the Bible, uh, not on a Sunday morning, although I do think that a study of the gifts would be a worthwhile uh, personal study uh, to undertake. Um, but I am going to deal with the text, with the, with the gifts that are listed here in our immediate text that we're dealing with because it's in the text. And, uh, and I, I try as much as possible never to just skip over difficult verses uh, for the sake of making uh, my job easy. So we're going to look at these uh, as we go through them. And the first one he lists is apostles. Now, the gift of apostleship is unique from all of the other gifts in that the gift, the gift is an office. The office is what is given as a gift rather than a specific ability. It's the one gift, and I say that in part because it is the one gift that cannot be used in a verbal form. In other words, those who have the gift of prophecy, prophesy. Those who have the gift of interpretation, interpret. Those who have the gift of healing, heal. Those who have the gift of administration, administrate, and so on and so forth. Those with the gift of apostleship do not go around apostolizing. Right? There's no verbal form of that gift. In other words, the gift of apostleship is the office. The office is the gift which generally includes other gifts such as healing, such as the working of miracles, prophesying, also carries with it the authority to speak infallibly on behalf of God. This is one reason why I say and believe that apostles do not exist today. Because to be an apostle is to be installed into the office of apostle by the resurrected Christ directly. The second reason I believe that there are no apostles today is because of Revelation 21.14 that says on that there are 12 pillars uh, uh, on the foundation of the new Jerusalem and written upon those pillars are the names of the 12 apostles. Now we can debate who the 12th apostle is, whether it's Matthias or the apostle Paul. Uh, I personally believe it's the apostle Paul. But nonetheless, what is not debatable is that at least in that revelation that was revealed to John, there are only 12. There are only 12. The second gift he mentions is prophets. That is, those given the gift of prophecy. It is doubtful that Paul has in mind Old Testament prophets. I don't think he means Old Testament prophets simply because he lists apostles first and then prophets. And I do not believe that even Paul would have thought of himself as being greater than Moses or Elijah or any of the prophets. So I don't think he's referring to Old Testament prophets. I think he's referring to New Testament prophets, that is, those who have the gift of prophecy. So then the question is, what is New Testament prophecy, and who are these New Testament prophets? First, number one, New Testament prophets are not, they are not the continuation of Old Testament prophets. That honor falls to the apostles. 
We need not allow the words to confuse us. Many Christians wrongly assume that New Testament prophets, that is those who have the gift of prophecy in the New Testament era, are the continuation of Old Testament prophets simply because they share the same title. Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets must be the same office, must be the same gifting, and that is not um, we cannot simply look at the titles, rather we, look, we have to look at how Old Testament prophets functioned in the Old Testament. In other words, in the Old Testament, prophets, Old Testament prophets spoke authoritatively on behalf of God. They spoke the very words of God. Thus, to disregard, in the Old Testament, to disregard the words or the warning of an Old Testament prophet was to disregard God himself. And the consequences were similar. Old Testament prophets were also directly appointed by God. Old Testament prophets were never unsure of whether they were actually prophets of God. They knew they were prophets of God. God had appointed them to be a prophet. And the evidence that they provided to be a prophet who was sent by God by means of the Holy Spirit were the incredible miracles that they performed. Moses parting the Red Sea, Elijah calling fire down from heaven, Daniel not being eaten by lions. <clears throat> the evidence of being a prophet in the Old Testament. The person we see in the New Testament who fulfills the functions of the Old Testament prophet are the apostles. The apostles do, not New Testament prophets. The apostles spoke authoritatively on behalf of God. They spoke the very words of God. To disregard or to ignore the words or the warnings of an apostle is to disregard the words and the warnings of God himself. New Testament apostles are all directly appointed by God. And the evidence that they provide by means of the Holy Spirit are the incredible miracles that they performed. Right? Peter and John causing a lame man to walk in Acts chapter 3. Peter raising a dead girl back to life, Acts chapter 9. Paul striking a sorcerer blind and raising a young man back to life who had fallen out of a second story window, Acts chapter 13 and also Acts chapter 20. New Testament prophets, on the other hand, Paul felt the freedom to ignore their warnings about not going to Jerusalem. And Agabus did not quite get the details exactly right regarding Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. Agabus said that the Jews would bind the man who owns this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, he was arrested in Jerusalem. Agabus got that right. But it was really the Gentiles who rescued Paul from the Jews. And it was the Gentiles who bound Paul. Under Old Testament standards, Agabus should have been stoned because he got the details incorrect. 
then what is the gift of prophecy then? Well, little can be determined from the New Testament, but here's what we can know from the New Testament. From Agabus's example in Acts chapter 21, it seems to be a divine impression or insight into some future uh, event that may occur, but it does not carry with it the force of thus saith the Lord. Whatever New Testament prophecy is, it is not God speaking authoritatively. We also know from chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, that Paul values the gift of prophecy above the gift of tongues. He says, seek tongues or seek prophecy more than tongues. I find it interesting then that in many charismatic slash Pentecostal churches, praying for the gift of tongues is almost exclusively emphasized. My guess is that it's because tongues is much easier to mimic than the gift of prophecy. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that every person who uh, claims to have the gift of tongues in our uh, fellow brethren's uh, charismatic and Pentecostal churches, I don't think they're all being dishonest. I don't think they're all lying or pretending. But nonetheless, it is true that a person can babble and pretend to speak in a foreign language and say that you have the gift of tongues. But if you're going to be so bold as to tell somebody you need to apply for that job and put your house on the market because God has told me that you will get that job and then the person doesn't get it, then you've got some explaining to do. And if that happens more than a few times, then you've got a lot of explaining to do. It's a lot easier to mimic the gift of tongues it is to mimic the gift of prophecy. Thus, Paul sees the gift of prophecy as having more immediate benefit for the church. Finally, we know from chapter 14, verses 29 to 33, that the gift of prophecy is not ecstatic. Neither is tongues, by the way. The Holy Spirit does not take control of people, control of their mouth. They can't, they can't help themselves and they're just babbling out and uh, they cannot control their faculties. It is not ecstatic. Paul makes that very clear. In our text, Paul then mentions teachers. Those who have the gift of teaching, teach. Or at least they should teach. If tongues is the gift that is most frequently emphasized in many of today's churches, then I would say that the gift of teaching is the one that is most frequently ignored. Because it would seem that in most churches, most Christians either believe that this is not really a gift or that the gift of teaching no longer exists or they believe that everybody has the gift of teaching. Because everybody should be doing it. A person can be saved for little more than a year. Churches are often all too willing to stick them into a Sunday school class or a small, week, small, small group Bible study. You need to be teaching the Bible. Don't worry about what you don't know. Look, we'll give you a curriculum and you just sit in front of people and you act like you know what you're talking about. That's a tremendous mistake. 
The other grievous mistake, mistake that is often committed is that once a person takes a few Bible classes or seminary classes or gets a certificate in biblical counseling, everyone assumes that they ought to be teaching the Bible. But Bible knowledge does not automatically qualify someone to teach the Bible. That's why James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let there not be many teachers among you. Why? Knowing that you will be under a stricter judgment. Those who teach the Bible will be held to a greater accountability than those who don't. Because when you teach the Bible, whether it's in a Sunday school class or a midweek study, people assume that you know what you're talking about. And they'll believe you. Yet the prevailing approach of many evangelical churches is if you're a Christian and you're a warm body, then we need you to be teaching the Bible somewhere. This way of thinking is so prevalent. It is so prevalent that now in many of our churches, there are entire worship services that are being run entirely by children including the preaching of the sermon that is being delivered. Why? Well, because it's just, it's just neat to see the kids getting together and having their own worship service and, and preaching. The, it's, just a, it's just a neat and wonderful thing to see. No, it's not. It's dumb. It's idiotic. And it's dangerous to allow them to do that. So then what is the gift of teaching? Which Paul mentions here, and he mentions it also in Romans chapter 12, verse 7. Here's my definition, my understanding. It is the heightened ability to take the deep truths of Scripture and explain them in a way that is accurate, faithful to the text, and is understandable. That's what the gift of teaching is. Because there are a lot of people who can learn the information, but not all of them can teach the information. In fact, I personally have uh, sat under preachers. I've listened to sermons uh, when I was in college, uh, majoring in biblical studies and even in seminary, I sat under teaching of some very smart men who had lots of initials at the end of their last name and yet struggled to understand what in the world is he even saying. I mean, he's speaking English and he's stringing all of the words together, but I have no idea what he is saying. What is his point? Where is he going with this? Very smart. Know the Bible, no clue what the man is talking about. You know, this is why one of the, one of the greatest compliments that I have gotten from time to time over the years, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything, but I, I so appreciate it and it warms my heart when someone comes up to me and says, everything that you just said, I completely understood. You said it in a way that just makes sense and I could understand and follow. That's my goal. I always want to put all of the cookies on the lowest shelf so that everybody can get to them. 
to take the deep truths of Scripture and explain them in a way that is understandable without watering down the Word of God. Because if I cannot teach the Bible, if I cannot teach the Bible in a way that is understandable to the simplest mind, listen, I have no business teaching the Word of God. It doesn't matter that I have a master's degree in theology if I can't teach the Bible in a way that is understandable to the simplest mind, I've got no business teaching the Bible. The gift of teaching is the ability to rightly handle the Word of God and accurately teach it to others. He then mentions miracles and healings, which are self-explanatory, right? The gift of miracles is, you know, striking blindness in someone like Paul did. Uh, the gift of healing is obviously healing someone, as Peter and John did, Acts chapter 3, lame man. You know, we don't have gold or silver, but what we have we'll give to you. Arise and walk. And the man was able to walk, right? Gift of The gift of healing. But then he mentions the gift of helping, which is the ability, the willingness and desire to help other people. The gift of helping. People with the gift of helping just never grow weary of helping. That's, that's how you know you have that gift, the gift of helping. They're the kind of people that just always want to help. They're always there for you. They're always willing to be available. And even if they give, give, and give to a particular person that never gives in return, they don't care. They just love helping. If you get tired of giving and giving and giving and you feel like you're always being taken advantage of, you probably don't have the gift of helping. Maybe you should pray for it. And then there's administrating. Many theologians believe that this is closely related to the gift of leadership that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 12, verse 8. This is someone who is gifted at leading, organizing, and inspiring. Not everyone can do that. Some people are leaders and some people are worker bees. Some people just need to be told what to do and they'll do it. They are happy. They are happy being told what to do. They will do it. They will work hard. They are gladly to receive orders and to carry them out. Just don't ask them to organize anything. Because they don't want to. They don't like it. They don't know how and it'll be a disaster. And that's okay. Because the church needs people like that who are happy to receive orders and be told what to do because in the church, and really in any organization, too many chiefs and not enough Indians leads to an enormous amount of problems. It's probably not even politically correct to use that phrase anymore, is it? He then mentions various kinds of tongues which we will delve more deeply into in chapter 14, so I'm going to wait until then. Paul has a lot to say about the gift of tongues and prophecy for that matter. However, Paul's point throughout is verse 28. God has sovereignly appointed these gifts within the church. He then asks a series of rhetorical questions to drive home his point in verses 29 to 30. Are all apostles? No, obviously not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? Certainly not. Do all possess the gift of healing? Nope. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Paul's point is that here is the evidence that God desires to see unity within diversity. 
If all were an eye, where would be the hearing? If all were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? God does this on purpose. He doesn't give everybody the same gift on purpose. But what is the point to all of this? I think Paul's point is this. Just like our physical bodies, our physical bodies are made up of different parts, right? Different parts. And all of the parts work together. They all have different functions. The hand doesn't do what the foot does. The foot doesn't do what the hand does, right? They all, they all have different functions, but they all work together in order to benefit ourselves and to benefit those around us. Right? The body, all of the parts of my body, I'm talking about my physical body, they have different functions and they all work together in order to benefit me and to benefit those around me. Right? My hands not only minister to myself, they feed myself when I'm hungry and they give myself something to drink when I'm thirsty and they, they move things out of the way when something is in my way. But my hands also minister to those around me. They minister to my wife. They minister to my children. These hands have actually ministered to strangers by helping them push a car out of the road. The body of Christ is composed of different parts with different functions, different abilities. So that when each part, when every member does their part and functions properly, we, the body of Christ, minister to each other, to the body, and we minister to the world. We minister to the world, to those around us. In other words, the church is the body of Christ to ourselves and to the world. And just as Christ, just as Christ himself possessed and utilized various gifts during his earthly ministry to minister to people, so also the church has been endowed with various gifts to minister to each other and to minister to the world. The church is the body of Christ to each other, to ourselves, and to the world. The church is the hands and the feet of Christ to one another and to the world. But then Paul ends with a little teaser in verse 31. In verse 31 he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. I think the higher gifts that Paul has in mind are the various aspects of love which he will flesh out for us in the next chapter. He'll then say at the end of that chapter, at the very end of chapter 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, listen, but the greatest of these is love. And then he will begin the very next chapter, chapter 14, with these two words, pursue love. Pursue love. In other words, as amazing 
as amazing and intriguing as all of these gifts are, without love, it is all meaningless. It's meaningless. God desires to see in us what God desires to see in us above all else is love. Love for God, love for each other, and love for the world. Because we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ, and what Christ possessed and displayed in his life above all, above all else, was love. He was driven in everything that he did by a love for God the Father and a love for people. That's what needs to be seen in us if we are the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. Help us to be more loving. Help us to be a loving people to each other, to our spouse, to our children, to the church, and to the world, Lord. We pray, Father, for this church, for this local body, that you would please Please make us into the body of Christ, that we would function as the body of Christ, that people would see Christ living in us and through us, that people would hear the voice of Christ speaking from our mouths, that people would see the face of Christ in our face and in our church. Lord, we pray this because we desire to bring you the greatest honor and glory and praise in light of all that you have done for us, in light of your amazing, amazing grace. Lord Jesus, help us to accurately reflect our Savior in the world and to one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.